I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Jesper Barnett. Jesper helped Torstensen to rally the Swedish cavalry in the Battle of Jankow, turning the tide of that battle and destroying Habsburg hopes in the process. Nice work, Jesper. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or click on the link in the description below. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to episode 76 of the 30 Years War. Last time, before I had my little holiday, we examined the initial phases of the Westphalian negotiations, and we looked at each of the delegations as they arrived in Osnabrück and Münster. We excluded one very notable delegation, the Imperial Habsburg one, because 1645 contained the disaster of the Battle of Jankow, which we must investigate first. It was that Battle of March 1645 that confirmed to the Emperor and his supporters that the war was, at least for the foreseeable future, unlikely to present any easy or wholly favourable outcome. Negotiation presented the best opportunity for the Habsburgs to retain what they still held and to protect what portions of their hereditary lands remained in their control. As the Swedish commander Torstensson was left free to rampage through Bohemia after Jankow, though, Time was clearly of the essence. The war which had begun in Bohemia nearly 30 years before had, so it seemed, finally come home. So without any further ado, I will now take you all to spring 1645, where we meet this situation face to face at last. With the Danish war plan plainly having misfired, peace negotiations beginning and the Swedish army under Torstensson enjoying a new sense of purpose. There was much for the Emperor's advisers to feel melancholy about when they gathered together in the new year to discuss their prospects. How much had changed in a decade? The simple patriotism which had moved his late father to urge all Germans to fight the invader would no longer suffice, and Emperor Ferdinand III now had to hear these men sigh that they no longer believed in a complete imperial victory. Would victory be better and more cheaply gained at the peace table? Now that the Danes were excusing themselves as mediators, it was to be expected that the Swedes would contribute proper suggestions to any peace negotiations at Osnabrück. With enough diplomatic dexterity, perhaps Sweden and France could be separated, the young Swedish queen brought off with some trinkets, and the final disaster averted. Keeping the Swedes away from Bohemia was key, since northern Germany was virtually emptied of potential allies 
whom the emperor could count on, and the Bavarians were too distracted with the French to intervene there. As part of his dynasty's hereditary lands, Bohemia was a critical element in the source of the Austrian Habsburg power base. If this base was undermined, then the Habsburg hold on the office of emperor could itself be threatened. There was thus much riding on the ability of the imperial generalissimo Melchior von Hatzfeld, who had replaced Matthias Gallus after the latter's poor showing the year before. Gallus had been criminally ineffective, not to mention roaring drunk, and he had failed to capitalise upon what was supposed to be a distracted Swedish host. With that failure in mind, Hatzfeld faced the formidable task of succeeding in the teeth not merely of fierce Swedish opposition, but also preparation. Torstensen was wholly focused on his imperial foe in this campaigning season, and he had even moved south when the Danish war showed signs of winding down so that he could meet whatever imperial challenge the emperor might send his way. Thanks to some diplomatic dexterity of his own, Chancellor Axel Oxenstierna had ensured that Transylvania ruined Habsburg plans in 1644. Perhaps if Torstensen could show his hand to be a strong one, the Prince of Transylvania would come knocking on the fragile Habsburg border again, thus undermining yet another source of the Austrian Habsburg power. All would depend on the outcome of battle. A victory would provide some shine to the imperial delegates arriving at Westphalia, but a loss would enhance the Swedish negotiating position, perhaps to disastrous effect. The Battle of Jankow has the distinction of being among the very last armies that the emperor constructed, which contained some elements of pan-Germanism. Despite their creaking security position, John George of Saxony sent 1,500 cavalry, and Maximilian of Bavaria was persuaded to part with 5,000 elite cavalry of his own. Hatzfeld would thus command some 11,000 horsemen, 5,000 infantry and 26 guns, and 500 dragoons were also added, bringing Hatzfeld's force to nearly 17,000. On paper, Sweden boasted more than 40,000 men in their pay in Germany by 1645, but a great portion of these were still occupied by the Danish war, particularly with the task of pacifying and conquering the bishoprics of Bremen and Verden, which King Christian IV of Denmark had once held for his sons. Under Torstensen's direct command was a force virtually equal to Hadsfeld's, with 9,000 cavalry and 6,500 infantry, but with nearly twice as many cannons, at 60. If Torstensen could bring this superiority of fire to bear upon his foe, Hatzfeld would suffer terribly. But where to fight the battle? Torstensen knew he would have to find some means of drawing Hatzfeld out, and to do this he continued in his quest to seize as much of the Habsburg hereditary lands as he could. The city of Olmutz in Moravia was his target, but Hatzfeld could not know whether he would make for that city by going north or south of Prague. Snows began to thaw in February, and the routes, which had already been worn from three decades of war, became impassable rivers of mud before long. In an effort to make it to comparative safety before the frozen ground melted completely, Torstensen took his men south of Prague to cross the still-frozen Moldau River, a tributary of the Elbe. But Hatzfeld anticipated the move, and marched his men forwards to cut the Swedes off. Hatzfeld arrived in the hills near the town of Jankow, and as Torstensen came to terms with his new position, he prepared to fight. 
By all accounts, the Imperial commander was in a good defensive position. In front of him was the river Yankov, which lent the nearby town its name, and this freezing stream would have to be crossed if the enemy was to meet him. Hills on the commander's left and right secured the line, which was spread over two kilometres, but this was where Hatzfeld's advantages ended. If Torstensen could overcome the stream and the network of ponds it created, and if he could make use of his superiority in heavy guns, Hatzfeld's men would be battered into submission. Perhaps considering this after a short skirmish in the morning, Hatzfeld adjusted his line to account for Torstensen's rapidly moving forces, who seemed to be attempting a feint. By now, Torstensen's army had moved over the river and was effectively facing down Hatzfeld's men. The two lines had moved drastically, and victory would go to the commander who could think best on his feet. At this crucial moment, the Bavarian cavalry elite Maximilian had sent to Hadsfeld charged. They repelled their Swedish counterparts, but as so often happened during this era, these 5,000 horse stayed behind to plunder the enemy's wares and women, nearly capturing Torstensen's wife in the process. Fortunately for the Swedish commander, he rallied the men back into the fray and effectively repelled or captured the finest cavalrymen of Bavaria. With the cavalry effectively absent, Torstensen had brought forward his superiority in gunfire, quickly overwhelming Hatzfeld's batteries, which had been unable to secure themselves on the uneven ground. The combination of absent cavalry and a superiority in fire quickly began to tell, and the infantry in the Imperial centre began to crack. It was an echo of earlier battlefield situations like Requois and even Breitenfeld, and it underlined the importance of coordinating and maintaining the different arms of the army intact until the end of the day. Hatzfeld failed in this task, though he had given it his all. In the course of the terrible carnage, several senior-ranking officers in the Imperial and Bavarian armies were slaughtered, and Hatzfeld himself was captured, his horse simply running out of steam as he sought to escape. It was like a cruel metaphor for the Imperial defence. After so many years of marching and fighting, this army had, it seemed, nothing left to give. The sting of defeat was not merely painful for Ferdinand because of all that had been lost on the battlefield, it was painful because he had been in nominal command, as the figurehead in overall control of Hatzfeld's men. Of course, Hatzfeld commanded during the battle proper, and Ferdinand was in no position to make any difference to the outcome, but his association with the campaign, where he may initially have hoped for an outcome closer to Nordling in a decade before, dulled that military aspect of his reputation, which he had so highly valued. If the Emperor could not save his men, then who could? Ferdinand even made desperate overtures to the drunkard Gallus, but the disaster turned to emergency when the Prince of Transylvania signalled his intentions to try his luck once more. Now that the Emperor was plainly reeling, it made sense for Transylvania to ignore the previous truce and strike into the soft Hungarian underbelly of the Habsburg domains. Like before, though, the prince found fewer supporters among the thoroughly Catholicized Hungarian base, but he still posed a fearful security risk and compelled the emperor to flee to Graz, Austria's second city, which was 200 kilometers southwest of Vienna. The French even got in on the act here. They signed an alliance with Transylvania in April 1645, 
and they attempted to follow up Torstensen's victory with some probing attacks of their own into Bavaria. In May, at the Battle of Herbsthaus near Bad Mergentheim, where the Teutonic Order had been based for several centuries, the Bavarians did beat the French back, and Turenne was himself nearly captured. Casualties were small, as were the size of the forces used, but the loss reminded Cardinal Mazarin that he could not count Bavaria out, even if the Emperor was teetering. Undeterred, Mazarin tried again, this time with an army roughly similar in size to Torstensen's at 17,000 men. On the 3rd of August 1645, this army under the joint command of the Prince of Condé and Turenne shattered its Bavarian counterpart at Allerheim, near the site where the Battle of Nordlingen had been fought a decade before. And even more significant, Franz von Mercy, the Bavarian commander who had caused France so many problems, was killed in the confrontation. Here at last, so it seemed, was something of a turning point in the course of the war. That the negotiations at Westphalia were to last another three years demonstrates that the Habsburgs had not given up the ghost quite yet, but there could be no denying that after a season of successive defeats, the well was running dry. Ferdinand had even fled Vienna at the news of the re-entry into the war by Transylvania, and in November 1645, his representatives finally arrived in Westphalia for the negotiations. By that time, John George of Saxony had officially thrown in the towel. Saxony formulated a truce with the Swedes on the 6th of September. The emperor's representative at Westphalia was a pragmatist and a realist. He was a veteran of court life and had recommended moderation if it would bring about peace quicker. In fact, he had spearheaded the approaches to Saxony a decade before in the Peace of Prague, and brought peace between the Emperor and Transylvania on numerous occasions. But who was this distinguished, accomplished imperial diplomat? Well, it was Maximilian von Trottmansdorf, by now in the twilight of his life and not in the best of health, but still the chief imperial negotiator and Ferdinand's confidant. The very fact that Ferdinand saw fit to send Trottmansdorf to Westphalia demonstrated that he took these negotiations very seriously indeed, and as Geoffrey Parker noted, it was impossible to have expected the Emperor to do otherwise. Parker wrote, The Battle of Yankow lasted longer than almost any other engagement in the war, precisely because everyone recognised its decisive nature. The Emperor hazarded all his economic and military resources, the prestige of his house, and his own reputation as a commander of superior ability. The fact that he lost them all through defeat made it almost inevitable that the final peace settlement would be unfavourable to the Habsburgs. After Yankow and Allerheim, there was no longer any Catholic field army able to withstand the Swedes and their allies, and everyone knew it. There are few clearer indications of Ferdinand's desperation and yearning for peace than in the instructions which he communicated to his advisor in Latin in mid-October 1645, shortly after sending him on his mission to Westphalia. They make for depressing reading if one is a Habsburg, but they also demonstrate that the Emperor had effectively come to terms with the reality. It went, I have considered the long duration of the present war, the ruin thereby inflicted on the Holy Roman Empire and on my hereditary kingdoms and lands in particular, the ever-increasing enemy forces and strength against my own ever-declining forces and strength and that of my allies, 
the almost exhausted means, the general size for peace, and its necessity because of all this, I have also considered the good qualities, long experience in negotiations, and the constant enthusiastic engagement for my and the common good displayed by Count Trotmansdorf, my senior Count Chamberlain. I am resolved to appoint the said Count to the peace negotiations in Munster and Osnabrück, and to give him the following secret instructions, which he is to follow, and to make peace as a last resort when nothing else can be done. After introducing the circumstances, Ferdinand then outlined several of the issues which Trotmansdorf was to try and solve, where he was to stand his ground, and where he was permitted to relent. Ferdinand's first demand set the tone for the others, when he noted... First, he is to work zealously to ensure that the estates of the empire unite as members with myself as head and father, that the disrupted harmony of the empire is restored, that the good old trust is re-established, and the proper combination of all estates is consolidated again, so that the foreign enemy crowns are brought to a proper peace, or that by forcing them back, we can resist them more readily. Ferdinand then dwelt on several other points, like the question of a general amnesty, Originally, 1627 had been set as the key date, but as the emperor himself now confessed, since it is likely that the estates will not be satisfied by this, the amnesty could be granted, in extreme cases to the year 1618, but then only in the empire, but always excluding my kingdoms and hereditary provinces and the Palatine affair, of which more will be said later. Indeed, Ferdinand declares his willingness to settle the Palatine affair, the cause of the war as he called it, by granting an eighth electoral title. This settlement, in other words, would enable Maximilian to keep his Bavarian electoral title, but Frederick V's offspring would be entitled to retain their electoral title as well. In return for this concession, Ferdinand declared that Trotmansdorf should ask for a ninth electoral title to be created from our lands but added that this can be relinquished if there is no other way. This proved a key suggestion in the peace negotiations, and it's significant to see them written here. At virtually every demand or request, Ferdinand added phrases like only to the last resort, only in the most desperate circumstances, and, as we've just seen, if there is no other way. This underlined for Trotmansdorf how far he was allowed to go with negotiations and addressed topics as varied as the ecclesiastical reservation which had been created in 1555 or the bill owed by Bavaria to the Palatine family or the issue of greater Lutheran participation in the Imperial Aulic Council. The issue was especially explosive because it revolved for Sweden around Pomerania and for France, Ferdinand suspected, around Alsace. As with all other cases, Ferdinand was willing to give away a great deal, but only if he absolutely had to. Thus, with the French, Ferdinand instructed Trotmansdorf to grant them Alsace along the Rhine if they return the fortress of Brysac, but this was only if his position was strong enough. If this cannot be attained, Ferdinand instructed, then Trotmansdorf should also attach Brysac, and if peace sticks solely on the Breisgau, finally to drop this as well, but only in the most desperate circumstances, especially as it is to be hoped that France will not ask for it, or at least will not insist on it, because up until now it has only claimed Alsace up to the Rhine. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ferdinand was especially wary about handing over the Breisgau region to the French because under the terms of previous familiar arrangements signed by his father, the Breisgau technically did not belong to him. It actually belonged to his cousin, Ferdinand Karl, henceforth referred to as Karl to avoid confusion. Karl was the Archduke of the Breisgau, Alsace and the Tyrol because he had inherited those lands from his own father in 1632. The arrangement, which Ferdinand II had authorised in 1626, had been intended to empower the cadet branches of the Habsburg family by giving them something to fight for and rule over, but now it was coming back to bite the emperor, because if he wanted to placate the French, it meant he might have to initiate a family feud which he could ill afford. Indeed, the emperor had even gone as far as ordering Trotmansdorf to act before they, his Habsburg cousins, do in the event that the latter proved unwilling to hand the Breisgau over. Was the emperor so desperate for peace with his enemies that he was willing to rip his family apart? Apparently he was, and given this willingness to do all that was necessary, we should also not be surprised to see him work to hand anything over to Brandenburg, if the elector of Brandenburg would consent to giving Pomerania to Sweden. The Pomeranian saga had been long and bitter for Brandenburg, thanks to the perfectly reasonable claim made by the late elector of Brandenburg to the Duke of Pomerania's lucrative inheritance. Ferdinand II had even consented to this transfer of land and titles from Duke Bogoslav of Pomerania to George William of Brandenburg, but the arrival of the Swedes and their conquering of the region complicated this convenient picture. George William was denied his inheritance, and the emperor was terminally unwilling to fight so far north for him. When their forces were defeated, the Swedes had retreated into their Pomeranian bridgehead, leaving no doubt in the Emperor's mind or in Brandenburg's that they intended to cling to the region for better or worse. Per these instructions, though, Ferdinand revealed his plan to make everyone happy. It involved nothing less than a plan to give Sweden everything it wanted. All of Pomerania, the bishoprics of Bremen and Verden, the ports of Stralsund, Wismar and Rostock. As usual, Ferdinand was careful to clarify that 
It should be understood that all this is only to be conceded gradually one after the other, and only as a matter of the last resort. That begged the question, though, how was Brandenburg expected to agree to such a calamity? Ferdinand believed he had the answer in other lands and titles, which Frederick William, the new elector of Brandenburg, might want instead. While one might have expected Frederick William to fold his arms and huff until he got what he wanted, Ferdinand rightly suspected that the new elector was made of stronger, more strategic stuff than his late father. With the war plainly against the Habsburgs and his plans for Pomerania up in smoke, Frederick William would certainly prefer some inland German nuggets rather than nothing at all. It is likely that those that also want Pomerania will object, Ferdinand began. So electoral Brandenburg can be offered my jurisdiction over the Duchy of Crossen, together with a sum of money, and so put off as long as possible. The Duchy of Crossen was a small slice of land with a complicated history. It was in Bohemia, but had been subject to the authority of the electors of Brandenburg in the past, while still owing taxes to the Bohemian crown and thus to the Habsburgs. Granting the Duchy of Crossen would effectively simplify the situation, but Ferdinand was not so foolish as to imagine that Frederick William would be easily bought off, and he had prepared a shopping list of duchies should Frederick William not be satisfied with this, and the emperor remarked, It can be given Halberstadt as well, together with some districts from Magdeburg. Meanwhile, the holder of the Archbishopric of Magdeburg, as well as Bremen and Mecklenburg, can be given financial compensation. The money must be provided by the imperial estates, instead of those that would have been given to Sweden. By shuffling these interests around the board, and drawing on new sources of tax to pay the disenfranchised, Ferdinand revealed an imaginative formula which would hopefully leave everyone happy. It was certainly a bold and controversial plan. If any of his relatives had gotten a hold of it, they would certainly have been upset to see their lands be nominated as potential pawns for a peace treaty. Even relatives as important as the Spanish were not out of bounds from the Emperor's considerations. Trottmansdorf was instructed to deal in good faith and correspondence with the Spanish plenipotentiaries, but Ferdinand was unwilling to ruin Vienna for the sake of Madrid's doomed war, as he noted... It is known that all our enemies' plans, intentions, efforts and works are directed to separate the Germans from the Spanish and, according to the principle divide and conquer, defeat one or the other both successfully. Therefore, Count von Trottmansdorf will above all ensure that it will not come to such a separation and will rather let all go to rack and ruin than this to happen. To avoid this danger, one must ensure that Spain is included in the peace. These instructions were predictable, but while he wished for Spain and Austria to stand together, what Ferdinand wrote next demonstrated that he was only willing to stand with the Spanish for a certain length of time. Therefore, the Count will stress to them the danger, the impossibility of continuing the war, the necessity of peace and a swift conclusion. Should they reject this, however, or claim they have no instructions, he should indicate to them that I cannot leave this business but will request that the King of Spain, my dearest cousin, brother-in-law and brother, with a previously agreed deadline, will agree to the peace, or if he does not, then he should not hold against me that I can no longer assist him. As far as Ferdinand was concerned, one could not afford to be sentimental, and all potential avenues for peace should be explored, if only as a final resort. If one's allies refused to see reason, 
they should be informed politely and gently that the burden of the war was no longer sustainable and that since this was the case, continuing the war was impossible. Interestingly, this is what happened. The emperor made his peace with France in 1648 and the king of Spain carried on the war with France alone. It was important not to anticipate this rupture in 1645, however, and Ferdinand was plainly anxious to ensure that the enemy could never know just how far he was willing to go. He trusted Trotmansdorf to make the right call. And this is what I give to von Trotmansdorf as instructions, that he realises that he is to proceed gradually in everything, and not concede this or that too hastily, but according to circumstances, and the final stages only as the last resort in dire straits, and when all hope is gone. I place my gracious trust in his prudence, skill, experience and loyalty, that he will observe the correct tempo and not act too soon or too late. He and his family remain in my grace, and I remain his gracious emperor. But unfortunately for this gracious emperor, worse news was afoot. Ferdinand was virtually stripped of allies in northern Germany. The Spanish continued to rumble forward, with little hope of eventual success against their rebellious Dutch subjects, not to mention the French, and the eastern border with Hungary was now volatile so long as the Prince of Transylvania was in the mix. Ferdinand may have hoped that after all these years of solidarity, the last person who would be willing to abandon him was Maximilian of Bavaria, especially since the latter had gained so much from his participation in the war, being raised to an elector and expanding his land holdings into the Palatinate as he did so. But Maximilian, as we know, was no fool. And as the ship began to sink, it was only to be expected he would look for a lifeboat elsewhere. He believed he had found it not in the fickle fortunes of military adventure, the Battle of Alarima had put a stop to that, but in diplomacy and through the French First Minister, Cardinal Mazarin. We've already seen how the military events of 1645 turned against the Habsburgs, but something which deserves special mention is the fact that Bavaria faced down the vast majority of French incursions into the Empire. Thus, if the Bavarians collapsed, this would open up the possibility for a joint Franco-Swedish assault on Vienna, or any other nightmarish scenario. Bavarian contacts with France had been underway for many years, and as early as Gustavus Adolphus's first foray into Germany, Maximilian had worked to reach some form of arrangement with the French, though to no avail. Maximilian had been forced to watch his lands fall prey to the rapacious Swedes, but in the years after this catastrophe, he continued to maintain limited contacts with Richelieu and then Mazarin, even with the French declaration of war on Spain in 1635, and the de facto open war with the Emperor from 1636. In 1643, these Franco-Bavarian contacts look set to increase, as Maximilian contemplated sending his French confessor to treat with Mazarin in his name, only to back down at the last minute. Nor was he the only one to hesitate. Mazarin was deeply vexed over the possibility that the Swedes might find out about these negotiations, since he desperately needed Torstensen to maintain the pressure on Vienna while French forces met the Spanish in the numerous other theatres. Even after Requois might suggest that a turning point had passed, the strategic situation for France was not so simple. The Battle of Tuttlingen in late 1643 was a catastrophic mess for France. 
In July 1644, Spain captured the town of Leida from a Franco-Catalan garrison, and one month later, they captured Freiburg. Fought over three days in August 1644, Freiburg was an inconclusive, costly disaster, especially for the French who lost 8,000 men to Franz von Mercy's 2,000. Plainly, the numerical superiority which was so evident in the French tax base and population had yet to produce an overwhelming, successive campaign of attack. Mazarin banked on it being only a matter of time before the success was found, and he certainly gambled that it would bring France glory and triumph before her people rebelled under the choking pressure of the taxes. This pressure finally began to tell by 1645, when the ripples caused by the defeat of Denmark were felt in the empire. Yankow routed the imperials, and Bavaria itself seemed to quake. In Münster, where many of the delegations had already arrived, France's agents reported to Mazarin that rumours of Franco-Bavarian negotiations were pretty easy to come by. The French were forced to lie to their Swedish allies about these rumours, but in spring 1645, the planned trip by Maximilian's French confessor had come to pass, and it was inevitable that the truth would soon get out to Sweden. For their part, the Frenchmen back in Munster were eager to communicate the point to Mazarin that secrecy should be maintained, whatever the situation on the battlefield might reveal. Certainly, Monsieur, France's situation seems to be so good in this war that we need only continue as we have while it lasts, and to keep all things in the state where they have been up till now. It could be dangerous to admit the slightest change. But Yanko seemed to change all this. As Maximilian's confessor attempted in vain to gain some headway with the suspicious Mazarin, news of Sweden's triumph filtered through in early March 1645. With this news, efforts in Bavaria were turned towards making the French see just how dangerous and powerful Sweden had become. And when that failed, Maximilian requested that France take Bavaria under her protection, but only as a last resort. What Maximilian clearly feared was a repeat of the Swedish comeback in 1632, when Gustavus rampaged across a helpless Bavaria, and all pleas to France fell on deaf ears. Maximilian wanted to ensure that Mazarin's ears were wide open this time round, and he was perfectly willing to leave the war if it meant saving his electorate from catastrophe. During the summer, the initially impossible situation seemed to improve, at least for Bavaria, since Turenne was kept at bay in the Battle of Herbstausen in July 1645. Unfortunately, this victory didn't either dramatically improve Bavaria's bargaining position with France or solve Bavarian security problems along the Rhine for very long. Instead, the loss seems to have tarnished French credit in the mind of her Swedish ally, and Swedish representatives used the opportunity to push for greater religious concessions at Westphalia. The knock-on effects of battle upon the negotiations were clearly felt then, but the impact wasn't allowed to rest for long, as the Battle of Allerheim a month later reserved French shortcomings, destroyed the Bavarian army and its commander von Mercy, and fulfilled Maximilian's nightmare all in a single day. By now, with this failure, there was no hesitation among Maximilian's officials. His council unanimously approved a plan to approach the French if it would save Bavaria now. By this point, Bavarian agents were approaching the French in secret in Munster and affirming their pledge to intervene favourably for French interests, 
essentially to vouch for them to the emperor if France would guarantee Bavaria and the position of Maximilian. By the 26th of August 1645, the three main French plenipotentiaries laid out to the Bavarians what they desired. This included Breisach, the Breisgau, the Sundgau, and the other lands and sovereign rights that the House of Habsburg had in Upper and Lower Alsace, and protection of the ten imperial cities with garrisons in the places where the king will judge necessary, and last, that the estates immediate to the empire that were under the protection of the Habsburgs will remain in the empire and will be under the protection of the king, and immediate estates will be controlled by his majesty as Landgrave of Alsace. Since we know the limits of what the emperor was willing to concede, we can deduce that the two sides were not far off guessing what the other side wanted or was willing to give up. Certainly, Mazarin seemed to believe that France was winning the struggle. By early September 1645, in light of the triumph at Allerheim, he was writing that these advantageous circumstances enabled him to lay down the law just as you like to our opponents, and they will be forced to acquiesce to everything we demand from them. But the Duke of Longueville, then in Munster, insisted matters were not so simple, and that we press as much as we can, but it is with little effect. Evidently, the peace negotiations, be they in secret between the French and Bavarians, or in the open at Westphalia, still had some way to go. 1645 had nonetheless demonstrated that the battlefield would decide the end result, no matter how long one spent determining where to sit at the peace table, what foods to import for one's place of residence, or even how to address one's fellow delegates. It was on the nitty, gritty, bloody, unpredictable battlefield that the truly momentous decisions could be gleaned. By the end of 1645, it was also clear that while the other parties did desire peace, it was the Holy Roman Emperor in particular who was yearning for peace and who was most aware of the deficiencies in the Habsburg position and, consequently, most amenable to some form of compromise or concessions, which, ten years before, the Habsburg camp never would have conceded to. And, of course, Ferdinand III's own father would rather have died than give up. But this was a new era. This was an era of Habsburg defeat, of Franco-Swedish-Dutch supremacy, and of the peace negotiations entering their final stage. We'll continue this story next time, history friends, but I hope you've enjoyed this important instalment of this fascinating story. Thanks so much for listening and for supporting this show on Patreon. You're the best. If you don't want to support on Patreon, why not give a review? I love reading reviews on iTunes or whatever it's called these days. Or give us a star rating on Spotify to encourage others to join in. Anyway, regardless of what you do or how you listen or how you support, thanks so much. My name is Zach, this has been episode 76 of the 30 Years War, and I'll be seeing you all soon.